suddenly happen a few, uh, a few verses ago in which someone asked him, how could I be the greatest in the kingdom? And he referred to being like a child. Well, here we have these children that were brought to Jesus. And the challenge for us today, as it was for his disciples in this context, is to ask ourselves this question. Have you grown up? And that is in a negative sense. Have you grown up in the bad sense of the term? Is a dangerous thing to grow up. It's very dangerous. And so here we'll see Jesus' warning and why it is so important to never stop being a child. It says this, Then children are brought to him, that he might lay his hands on them and pray. And the disciples rebuked the people. But Jesus said, Let the little ones come to me, and do not hinder them, for to such belong the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them, and he went away. And behold, a man came to him, saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. And if you would enter life, then keep the commandments. And he said to him, But which ones? And Jesus said, You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother. Love your neighbor as yourself. Now, the young man said to him, All these I have kept. What do I still lack? And Jesus said to him, Therefore, the bottom line, If you would be perfect then, go and sell all your possessions. and Give them to the poor. Then you will have treasure in heaven. And come and follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions, many possessions. He was a wealthy man. And so the danger of growing up here, pretty evident, we just read it for what it is is that you have these small children that were brought to Jesus. And then you have someone else who isn't brought to Jesus, walks to Jesus on his own two feet because he, after all, is an adult. He comes to Jesus. And both those stories end very differently. The disciples rebuked the people who brought the children. And then Jesus rebuked the disciples for rebuking the people who brought the children. He said, particularly, let them come to me. Let these little ones come to me. Don't hinder them. For these are the kind of people that make up my kingdom. This is what it is. These are my people. These little ones. See, Jesus had just previously answered a question. 
in which one of the disciples said, how can I be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And just a little bit ago, he responded by saying, unless you become like a little child, humbled like a little child, you will never enter my kingdom. And we know, of course, anyone who's been around children for five minutes, they're not really actually that humble, right? When people say, you need to be humble like a child, the, the quick response is, you need to be around more kids. They're not humble at all. They think they can do everything. In fact, they're very confident oftentimes. But what Jesus is saying is that you need to be humble in status. You need to be low in the fact that you see your status in this world as nothing. That is, children do understand that. Even though they don't like it, and they would like to grow up, and we always are pushing to grow up. Remember how it was when you were younger, how you wanted to be in sixth grade? And then you wanted to be in high school, the high school? And you just wanted to get there faster and, and get your driver's license and then grow. And then all of a sudden, after 21, I think, when you're allowed to drink alcohol, what else do you got going on except Social Security and kidney stones? <laughs> so you race to the finish line and that's it. Years ago, they made the movie out of C.S. Lewis' children's narrative, The Lion, the Witch, and the wardrobe. Now, I will confess this because it's embarrassing, but not embarrassing enough that I shouldn't be able to say it. The super embarrassing things, would you be surprised, don't make it into the sermon. I don't say that. Um, but for the longest time, I thought the name of that movie was The Lion, the Witch, and the War Troll. And I, was, I would say that, and no one would correct me, like nobody. I guess I said it real fast, but I was saying that for a few years. And then I saw the title once, because I'd never seen the movie, but I was like, well, oh, it's a witch. Why not a war troll? I mean, sure. Um, but it actually is called The Wardrobe. The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And that makes sense, actually, because the, there's a wardrobe in the movie. Um, but it's like that for the kingdom. You see, they got into that world, that world of Narnia. Only the kids got in. They had to push pack the coats, crawl into the wardrobe, and once they got past a certain point, they landed in snow. Amazing creatures. Imagination is everywhere. You see, there's something like that in Jesus' teaching. I don't know if that's with C.S. Lewis's intent with that metaphor. But only children will be foolish enough to crawl into a wardrobe and pretend that they are fighting goblins. When we grow up, the invitation to this kingdom, well, it's really just not all that important. Because now we're old enough to build our own kingdom. So Jesus says, unless you can be small like a child, the door to this kingdom is so small You'll have to get on your knees and crawl in. You'll have to lower yourself to fit. You'll have to set aside all your preconditions and knowledge and accept instruction like a child. This is Jesus' warning that if we were to lose our low status, and that's what we mean by not growing up, 
that we not lose our lowliness, our low status that we once had as children before everybody was giving us paychecks and asking for our advice and before we had a house and a car and all these things we could do and all these freedoms we could go. Before those days, we can't lose what we once were when we were children. This humble status, meaning that we are smaller, we are weaker, we are insignificant like children, we constantly need instruction, protection, and provision. And we could never grow out of that all our days. Thus enters this man. He's a young man. How interesting. He's the cross between the two. He's not a child. Maybe not an old man. But he's growing. He's a young man. He comes to Jesus and he says... Teacher, what good must I do to enter into this eternal life? And Jesus pauses him and says, Why do you ask me what is good? You know there is only one who is good. Referring to God himself. Absolutizing God. That there is really only one good. But if you were to try to enter this life, if you want to try to get there, there is a way. There is a door. All you have to do is keep all the commandments. And what he does is he outlines these commandments for this young man. And all of the commandments he lists happen to be the ones that we can see and observe and do, the ones that are external. He goes on to say, don't murder. Well, that's easy enough. Don't commit adultery. Sure. Don't steal. Don't bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. Just love your neighbors. Love the people around you that you can touch, see, taste, and smell. Just go ahead and be a good person. And so he has that table set as Jesus puts it before him. And this man is all too eager to say, check, check, check. I like this game. Is there anything else? And then he knows enough to know one thing, though. That can't be enough. Because I still feel like I deserve to die. I still don't know that I would have this thing called eternal life. So he says, all these I have kept, but what else do I lack? What am I missing? And so Jesus flips everything on his head and goes right for his heart. And he says, then therefore, if you are to be perfect, the word there is complete, lacking nothing. If you were to be that way, everything you have and throw it away and come follow me. Do you want me to preach on that verse? Or do you want me to move on? Everything you have, give it away. Come follow me. And you'll have treasure in heaven. See, the danger here is growing up. Small children with nothing. Jesus says, bring them to me. These are my kind of people. But now we know three things about this man. He is rich, he is young, and he is a man. That is, 
He is not a child. He is a man. But he's not an old man. He's still got some fiber in his bones. He can change. He's a young man. He hasn't set the course of his life yet. He's obviously a young man who's wealthy, suggesting he inherited this wealth. He obviously didn't work for this wealth, digging ditches, doing day labor, as the next parable of Jesus will follow next week. He walked into some money. He is a young man who's already arrived. He is a wealthy man who has the world at his fingertips. But he's still young enough that if he were to make a decision now, he would not be set in stone as a cold, hardened man living for this world and himself alone. And so you see how the parable comes in, how the story enters right after Jesus meets with the small child to invite me and you to consider our lives. To say, you once were these small children. Maybe tomorrow you will be this young man, or you were the young man. But the question stands now, how are you growing? Have you assumed that your things are yours? For the man went away sorrowful, saying to himself, I have great possessions. No child ever says that. For every child knows everything they have to the pillow they sleep on, to the toys they play with, are their fathers. And so they are always ripe for the kingdom. But this man thinks he has great possessions. See, a friend of mine pointed this quote out to me once. He said, from G.K. Chesterton, said it this way. It is possible that God says every morning, do it again to the sun. And every evening, do it again to the moon. It may not be automatic necessity that makes every daisy alike. It may be that God makes every daisy separately, but has never grown tired of making them. It may be that he has an eternal appetite of infancy. For we have sinned and grown old, and our father is younger than we. You know the joy when children love doing the same little repetitious thing over and over again, and they exhaust you with it. Throw them up. Throw them up. Throw them up. Bounce them here. Bounce them here. Just recently, I was speaking with Heather uh, yesterday morning, actually, where every five or ten minutes, um, Violet will want to come and just check in on her, make sure she's okay, and maybe sit on Heather's lap for a minute. And then she's gone, but she wants to come back and then say, hello, hey, mommy, can you hold me? How are you doing? And then just go play with a toy about every 5, 15 minutes or so. That repetition as an adult is, can I get anything productive done? Do I have to? And yes, you do. Yeah, that's the whole point. It's almost like God wired children for us to say, don't ever grow old. What if God does make the daisies every day? What if he just loves to see the sun come up and it's just as fresh as a newborn infant would see a new sunrise for the first time? What if he enjoys it that much again? But see, we have sinned and grown old. And everything's gray and redundant for us. But our Father is younger than us. He's innocent. He's pure. And that's why only those who are like that can enter into his kingdom. Those who are like children 
The question then comes to this particularly. When he says to the man, give all of your possessions away to the poor and come and follow me and you will have treasure in heaven. What are we to do? What are you going to do with that verse? When he says that particularly, we want to say, yes, that's Jesus speaking to this man, this particular man who has a particular problem with his heart, and Jesus is addressing him particularly. That is, if he wants to be perfect, this particular man, it's not normal for everyone, it's a challenge for this man in this situation. There's good reason for that. Think of this. As Jesus died, Joseph of Arimathea, we're told in Matthew 27, was a rich man and he was Jesus' disciple. And he set aside the tomb for Jesus. That is, a disciple of Jesus was rich. A disciple follows around Jesus for many years. And evidently, Jesus never told him to get rid of all of his riches. Because at the end of Jesus' ministry, he's still a rich man who's able to put the money down for Jesus' temple. You find in Luke 19, Zacchaeus gave away half of his wealth. Not all of it. And Jesus says, salvation has come to this man. Oh, so he got a 50% bargain on eternal life. You see, no. It's not about the money. It really isn't. Luke 18, Joanna is a very wealthy woman. She's married to a man who manages the house of King Herod. And we're told in Luke 8 that she funded Jesus' ministry. So Jesus, in the midst of saying all this, is most likely being funded and supported by wealthy, rich people. So it's not an absolute truth in the fact that Jesus is saying being rich is wrong. Owning wealth is not wrong. So long as the wealth doesn't own you. So long as you know what it's for. Why did God give you so much money? Like, not just because He loves you and wants you to be blessed. That's true. But really, why are we here? Why do you have clothes? Why are we in a warm building? Why did I speak to high schoolers who actually have a class in school on video gaming as a career path? Because our economy is ridiculously affluent. That's actually a class they teach in high school. To learn how to be a professional gamer. So you can make money while other people watch you play video games. That's how you know you're in a very wealthy society. No subsistence farming here. What I'm saying is, we are so wealthy. Consider the people that Jesus is talking to. The day laborer who literally gets paid that day and has to go down to the market that night to buy his food, to cook it over a fire, to get up the next morning, to go do the labor again, never saving a penny. The day laborer, that's why it's called a denare, a day's wage. It's a common conception of giving someone just enough money so them and their family do not starve to death for that day. The next parable that Jesus is going to enter into is a parable of a rich man who hires day laborers. Now, how wealthy are we? That that whole concept, you need a preacher to explain that to you because it is so historically divided from the context of Jesus' own words. 
the economy in which he lives, the people he's talking to with bare feet. The money we have, the wealth, the comfort. This is his word to these men. We want to rationalize it and externalize it. That's, that's a simple, we just rationalize. This man was particularly very wealthy, and he's particularly had a, a, an inordinate love of money, and he was indulgent, and he really liked his status, and he, he just loved selfish living, and that's why this man gets that word. But that's not me. So what's the next verse? Right? That's, that's a dangerous thing. That's exactly what this man is doing, you see. This man is externalizing and relativizing his own situation. That's what we always do when we want to avoid the conviction of God. Because he said, what do I need to do to become, uh, have eternal life? And it's all external. Do all these external commandments and let it be relative. You're just a little bit better than your neighbor. Jesus pauses him on both of those and makes it no longer uh, rationalizing the external. But he brings him in close and says, who is good? Only one is good. Therefore, Jesus keeps him from relativizing. Keeps him from saying, I'm a little bit better than that guy and a little bit better than this person. Jesus pauses him the whole way through and says, no, there's only one good. And then he goes straight to his heart internally. What do you covet? What do you love? Get rid of all that. And so we want to do the same thing with this man. We want to externalize his situation and relativize his situation without actually looking at our situation. The reality would be, of course, that a rich person would be an American who makes $60,000 a year, a single American who makes $60,000 a year is in the 1% of global wealth in the world at this moment. So however you want to define wealth, but imagine 1% would be sufficient. That'd be pretty rich. That'd be one out of every 100 people. Uh, every American gets close to that just by sneezing. It's just, it's all perspective, isn't it? What this money is that God has given us. So it's very difficult. The warning, I, I feel like the warning would have to be all the more important for us is when Jesus gives the warning that it is very difficult for rich people to go to heaven. It's so difficult that he actually says it's impossible. Not just difficult, it's impossible. Uh, for the wealthy, uh, who are already busy building their own kingdoms to be invited to this kingdom. Oh, where's the kingdom? Oh, it's up in heaven. Uh, you can't taste it, see or touch it, um, and wait for it. It's coming. Oh, okay. I'll, I'll be excited for that kingdom, meanwhile, doing everything that we have in the freedom of our modern economy to build our own kingdom. You see, the enticement, the, 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 the invitation to the gospel falls on deaf ears. You want me to give it all so that I can effectively have nothing now so that I can enter into that kingdom that you're telling me is by and by in the sky that someday I will be in this kingdom. Well, if you already have so much possession, how do you hear that? And Jesus' answer is, you don't hear that. No one ever normally has ever said, yes, that sounds like a good business idea. I would love, I would love to take all my assets and resources and divest them in a different direction that doesn't meet my immediate ends. Like, for someone to do that, if someone were to do that, you would be witnessing a miracle a miracle. For that is impossible, Jesus says. See, the specific warning of the common problem is this of the heart. It is a specific warning to a rich man. 
but it's a warning to all of us. See, Jesus, he gives the general warning. You would say, oh, he's just talking about this one rich man who has a particular problem with wealth. But then Jesus, right after that, says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, only with difficulty can a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. He just made a principle out of it. He just drew your heart into the text. He said, you can't just relativize and distance this man. Now, Jesus is saying, this man is also all of us. That it is difficult for everybody to enter the kingdom. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And the disciples were astonished by this because obviously in the first century Jewish context, anyone who had a lot of money was interpreted to be blessed by God. So if you were very wealthy in this life, it is a foresight or a foresign that you'll be blessed in the next life. So they were astonished. They were shocked. How could the rich not go to heaven? In fact, the rich are the ones God is pouring out blessings on every day. And Jesus responds by saying, not only is it difficult, with man this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. This specific warning, he points straight to the heart and says, why do you ask me what is good? No relative speak. See what Jesus did? We can never approach his text and say, yes, that person there that makes 10,000 more dollars than me a year, they're the rich person. Because then you're stuck in the sliding scale of relativity. What is rich? What is rich? Someone could be a millionaire and not care about it at all. Someone can have five dollars and grovel over it as an idol every night. You see? No relative. Absolute. What is good? Jesus says, what is good? He asks the question back to him. What do you think good is? There is only one who is good. There is only one who is love. There is only a pure heart with a pure eye to fix on Christ alone. And therefore you might be good. But if you are divided, if your hearts and your passions are dispersed, you are not good. You are riddled and full of idols. You see, he goes to all of these expressions of external and relative things. You could relatively not murder. You could relatively not steal. You could relatively not bear false witness. External of your heart. But you can lust in your heart. You can covet in your heart. You can wish to steal. You can wish to hurt. You can have angry motives that lead to murder. You can have all these internal and absolute realities that we cannot escape. Nor can we escape the verse with this man. That that is really where our heart is. That is, the money we have, what do we do with that money? How do we feel about that money? What do we plan with that money? How do we think with that money? Our riches... Remember, we're just children. They're not our riches. They are our fathers. Everything has been given to us as a blessing from above. And not one penny do we actually really owe. We owe none of it. We are simply stewards of it. The end. The end, Jesus brings him to, is with the first commandment. He gives him all these other commandments. Do not steal. Don't bear false witness. Commandment 5, Commandment 6, but he ends at the beginning. Have no other gods. 
And instead of saying, have no other gods, because that man is like us, we will externalize and relativize that commandment. Well, I haven't bowed down to an idol. And I'm more pious, I go to church more than that guy over there. Reverse would be, Jesus bypasses all of that and says, give everything away. That's how you get rid of your idols. Straight, internal, and absolute. So when do I get the pressure release valve for this one? Like, where do I get out of this? Are you guys uncomfortable? Was I uncomfortable preparing this message? Can you fall on your face and say, everything I have, Lord, is yours. Now please use it for your kingdom. I love you with all my heart. And then go ahead and make as much money as you possibly can. That's a good place to be. That you would purge yourself of idols. That you would be pure like a child that wants nothing in this world but Jesus, my Christ, my Lord, my treasure. And that everything I have, that I could just throw it up to him. And that he could turn it all into gold. That I could store it up in heaven. That I could lay up treasures that will return to me a hundredfold. Why? Why would I rest in this life? Why would I put anything in here that I particularly think to be an investment? For it all goes up in fire. You see, Jesus is not a beggar. He is not looking for your money. In fact, all your money is his money. He is trying to make you rich. He's trying to give you an investment. He's saying, do not be a fool. Do not put your money in this world. You are passing with the dust that is blown every day with it. And there is only one way. That if you were to give all of your wealth to this kingdom, that is, that you may seek first his kingdom and everything else being added to you, his promise stands. It cannot be moved. He will not alter it in one way. That everyone who he says has left house or brother, or sister, or father, or mother, or children, or land, for my name's sake, will receive 100-fold more and inherit eternal life. Jesus is not looking to manipulate or take from you. He is looking to make you rich. Because everything in this life is false wealth. For he speaks of this age to come, of eternal life, of the kingdom, of being saved. But he also says it is like a new world with new real estate options, new places to buy, the age to come. He says in the new world, Jesus will sit on his glorious throne in his kingdom. But the only way into that kingdom is through an impossible door. It is an impossible door. This is the problem of being an impossible man. See, we have a particular great problem in this church. If you have to pick your problems, having a nursery that's super full of kids and your nursery volunteers are complaining to you pastorally about how it's 
it's literally Vietnam back there is wonderful. I mean, like, you know, pastoral ministry, you're going to have problems, right? If you got to pick your problems on a list, be like, I'll take that one. That's a, that's a great problem. But it is. It's a problem. I had a very, uh, I'm getting used to our uh, staff meetings. I, I'm starting to learn uh, body language better, so I know, like, when the problem is going to be floated across my desk. If it's a real problem or not a real problem, just to by the position of how some people sit in their seats. Um, and this one was one kind of like a, a conversation that seemed we needed to fix this. And we did. So in the next few weeks, we'll be um, breaking through one of the walls next to the nursery uh, with a door to the adjacent, adjacent room. So some of the older nursery kids, you know, can be in uh, another room and it's a little more spread out with more volunteers. So uh, last thing I want to do is irritate my nursery volunteers. You guys are gold. There was a, if there was an, a treasure in the world that I would be prone to idolize, uh, I need to watch my heart over nursery volunteers. I'll fall in love with you. Um, but, but someone had a suggestion, and I think it, it, it applies so wonderfully, where, where they said, why don't we make a little door next to the big door for the little kids? Because it would be cute. And it would. And I actually got really excited. Like My little child in me was like, yeah, let's do that. They would love it. Like a little door, a little handle, and they'll have to walk through. Uh, and then someone was like, well, yeah, but that could be a problem because, you know, they'll get in and get out, and it'll be hard to keep track of them. And if it's a little bit of a tunnel, then you've got adults trying to crawl in there. Someone's going to get stuck. Kids going to be stra- trapped. So we were just like, well, maybe, maybe for phase two. We'll look for a little door. Maybe not now. But you see, that really is the issue. That little door is how you get into the kingdom. The only way you're going to get in is getting on your knees and crawling. The cross of Jesus Christ. Nobody who has grown up, who has held their chin up high and said, look at what I have, look at what I've accomplished, look at all my treasures that I cannot bring with me when I die. And if you try to hold on to any of that, and if you don't lower your chin Crawl down in that child-sized door. You'll never get in. It'd be easier for a camel to go through an eye of a needle than a rich man full of lusts and love of gold. So this is the dilemma of the impossible man. Because Jesus tells him, you can get in. Just do this. You can do something. Give everything you have. I can pay my way to heaven. But then he quickly retorts, yes, but that's impossible for any rich man to do. So the problem would simply be, well, if it's possible for a man to do it, but impossible because no one will do it, now we're in the position of an impossible man. And there is Jesus, our Lord. The man who is God. The man who can fit you for the door. The man who called himself the way. That he has said, all things are possible for God. With man this is not possible. So God became a man. So that a man could do it under the power of God. That is for you. He, as a small child boy, Jesus did not come through as an adult man. On purpose. He had to live and grow in stature and resist every temptation to grow up in status. Every temptation toward pride and vanity. He grew up.
before us in our midst, Isaiah says. And he resisted every temptation along the way. And then as he grew up as a young man he was, he entered into the wilderness and Satan himself exposed him to all the riches and wealth of the world. And he resisted the thing you and I have never done. That he said, no, 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 be gone with me, Satan. For it says in Deuteronomy 6, you shall serve the Lord your God alone. Commandment number one. He did. Every day of his life, he never grew up from the small child he was in the manger. He grew up to be a young man, a rich man. And Philippians says he emptied himself of it all. Though he was equal with God, he did not take on the status of that. He had, if anyone had the appropriate reason to status themselves, to lift themselves, to say, I have status, you should honor me. I have grown up, I have arrived. It was God himself incarnate. And even there we're told in Philippians that though he had equality with God, he did not take it to be grasped, but he emptied himself and became like a servant, like a child. He considered himself to have no status at all, and he gave it all away. For our sake, he who was rich became poor, so that we might become rich. And he rose from that grave with a new body, fitted for a new world. For that is the word that Jesus calls the kingdom. It is a palagenesia, a regeneration of the world. And only those who are born again, regenerated like little children, can live in it. So let us pray. Because we need the Lord to bend our will. Our wheels are like hard iron, and only the hands of God are strong enough that he can actually bring even the wealthy to their knees to fit through that door. We pray that for ourselves. We pray that for a revival and reformation in this church and in our country. Dear Father God, you have given us so much wealth. It is remarkable. And with that, Lord, we understand your warning to be true that it is absolutely impossible for America to bend her knees to you. But Lord, before we be so concerned about nebbing into other people's sins, come to you with our hearts, Lord. Lord, we ask that you would do what is impossible, that you would bend our wills to be your will. Yes, Lord, even us here who are very wealthy, we ask, Lord, that you would have us not grow up, not grow old, not grow cold like the gold that we love. Instead, Lord, keep us on our knees. Let us see everything you've given us, Lord, and invest it into your kingdom, not our kingdom. We cannot serve two masters. Either we build your kingdom but we build our kingdom. But we may not build both kingdoms. In Jesus' name we pray, let your kingdom come. Amen. Amen. Would you please stand if you're able?